Amen. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, what we're doing now is we're continuing uh, a, a mini-series that we began about four weeks ago. Normally, if you're new to the church, normally we take a book of the Bible and we go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and, um, and certainly that's what we have been doing through the Gospel of John, but uh, encountered a bit of a, a timing issue um, in, in that uh, we left off just coming up to Palm Sunday, and I wanted to teach through that section in John when we get to Palm Sunday, and it gave me this opportunity to focus in on this mini-series that we've entitled Foundational Values. And what we're doing is we're looking at four foundational values that are essential uh, for life. And um, last week, we focused on the foundational value of prayer, and the weeks before that, we focused on the foundational value of God's Holy Spirit. We focused on the foundational value of God's Word. And today, we're going to shift our focus, and we're going to look at the foundational value of missional living, missional living. And the key uh, root word there is this word, mission. And let me tell you why this topic matters to you today. Everybody has a mission in life. Everybody has a mission in life, but the problem is, is that not everybody understands what their mission is, and that's a big problem because one of the key questions in life, everybody asks this question, and that is, what is my purpose? Why am I here? And it's actually part of three key critical questions that all of mankind wrestles with, and those questions are, uh, who am I? Uh, why am I here? What's my purpose? And, and where am I going? And that, th that's important that we focus on those. That the question of who am I deals with our identity. And the question of why am I here deals with our purpose in life. And the question of where am I going deals with our future in life. And conveniently, the Bible answers all of these questions. And here in our text today, um, these 10 verses encapsulate uh, the biblical answer, the answer from God, the truth of God as to uh, why am I here, uh, what's my purpose, and where am I going? And, um, and who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? So... Uh, we pick it up, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and it tells us, you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I always like to describe this verse this way, that when we take a group picture, who's the first person you look for when, you take, when you're part of a group picture? You, right? Do I have something in my teeth? Do I have some weird look on my face? How do I look in this, right? And Paul says, well, let me tell you how you look. You, apart from Jesus, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You don't look so hot. In verse 2, he says, you, uh, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, uh, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up together, and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
for, and he repeats it just in case you weren't paying attention, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, that's the operative word, should walk in them. In these 10 verses, Paul answers mankind's three biggest questions. And the first question he answers right out of the gate is, who am I? Now, answering this question, who am I, is the most important question that we will ever answer. Why? Because your answer to that question, who you are, it absolutely determines how you're going to answer the two other questions. You have to answer who you are in order to answer the question of why am I here and where am I going? Christian author and speaker Frank Powell put it this way. He said, who am I is the single most important question that you will ever ask. Your identity is the foundation of your actions. If you don't understand who you are, you won't understand where you're going. And although many people don't understand this connection, a meaningful life is impossible unless you understand your identity. In other words, the answer to your question, who am I, this informs uh, where you're going and why you're here. So who am I? Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul answers this question, basically says, look, apart from Jesus, you are a child of wrath and you're dead. You are separated from God who is the giver of life and you're a slave to dead works, you're a slave to dead dreams and you are a slave to a dead future. Why? Because all life comes from God. And so if your answer of who you are is, is absent of God, then what it is is a dead life and a dead pursuit. The Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And this is the, the natural get for everyone who is born and can fog a mirror apart from Jesus Christ. That, that if your answer to the question of who am I does not include God, then, then it is a path of death and destruction. That's what the Bible teaches. But, Paul says, in Jesus, you're made alive, you're born again as a child of God, and rather than being separated from God, you are separated from wrath. And rather than being a victim and a slave to sin and a slave to death, Jesus sets you free to a victorious life of love and of hope. But listen, here's the thing. Because your identity is foundational for your purposes and for your future, Satan wants to destroy that. And so Satan goes after identity like, like nobody's business, man. He is constantly attacking identity. See, he knows that if he can cloud your identity, then not only will you not live a meaningful and a purposeful life, but that you'll actually be in critical danger of eternal death and destruction. And we see this manifested in so many ways across our world. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the examples that we see in where Satan attacks identity and where he clouds identity is in the victims of, uh, of sexual abuse. Those who, who have suffered sexual or physical abuse um, have their identity, their very identity is, is challenged. 
And, and here's the thing. We live in a tragic age um, where many are afflicted by sexual assault and, and by abuse. You know, statistically, it's, 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 it, it basically, it works out like this. One in five women, statistically, are victims of some sort of, abu- of abuse, whether it's physical abuse, whether it's, whether it's sexual abuse. Uh, one in five women deal with this. And, of course, we see this. Uh, it's, it's a hot topic right now uh, in our news. You know, you've got the, the, the Harvey Weinstein deal that was, that was uh, you know, such a, such a prevalent thing. You're seeing so many other cases right now. Uh, you know, uh, Mayor Cuomo in New York has a lot of allegations that he's behaved in a sexually abusive way. You've got the Me Too movement that's going on. And, and sadly, we know that this is true, even if it weren't for all of those things we see on the news, we know that it's true based on our own experience. I, I venture to say that every single one of us probably knows a man or a woman or a child who have been either sexually abused or violently assaulted or raped or suffered molestation in their past. And, and you know, maybe... Not, not only do you know somebody, but maybe it might be you. Today you might be here and, and you're thinking, man, that, that, that's my past. I mean, I, I experienced abuse in, in my past. And here's what Satan does, because he attacks identity. So, so what he does is not only is Satan the one who is ultimately behind the abuse that has been perpetuated against you, but what Satan does is he then further perpetuates that harm by messing with your identity. And so for many who have suffered abuse, their answer to the question of who am I, well, it then becomes, uh, well, I'm a victim of sexual assault. I'm a victim of child abuse. And, and, and what happens is this hangs over your life like, a, like a, a, an ominous shadow. It is your constant unwelcome companion. And then what happens is, is that your identity now becomes inextricably linked to this, to this heinous thing that has been done against you. And, and, and so if you were to ask somebody, hey, who are you? Well, so often those who have been through those things, they say, well, let me tell you who I am, and I don't like it, but I'm a victim of sexual assault. I'm a victim of child abuse, and, and it constantly is, hey, that's your identity, that's your identity, that's your identity. Let me tell you, that is not your identity. Yes, that happened to you, and it's tragic that you endured that, but that is not who you are. You see, the gospel message is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he was assaulted, he was abused, he was beaten, and he was murdered. Uh, Paul put it this way to the Corinthians. He said, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin, or literally to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took the sins of the world, including the sins that were perpetuated against you, including the sins that you now carry and feel guilty of. So many people who have been abused sexually, um, they, uh, they in, the, in the twisted mix of that abuse that's been perpetuated against them, they carry guilt and shame um, because there, there was, you know, some degree of their 
participation in it, whether it was willful or whether it was, or whether it was you know, some confused, toxic mix in the whole thing or whether it was absolutely victimhood. But, but this, this dynamic happens to where guilt and shame is, is part of the process. And, and so, you know, you're like, man, that's me. No, God took that sin upon himself. He was assaulted. He was abused. He was beaten. He was murdered. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus understands our weaknesses. Why? Because he faced all the same testings that we do, and yet he did not sin. And here is the good news of the gospel for the victims of our day that we worship a God who himself identifies not just with specific suffering, which he does, but he identifies with your suffering. And not only does Jesus identify with you, the Bible says that, that God covers your shame, that he cleanses you of all sin, that Jesus makes you clean and righteous in his sight. That's an amazing thing when you think about it because the guy that, guys that you shave in the mirror every day, you know who he is. We have a really good idea of the sinners that we are by nature and by choice. And in case we lose sight of that, Satan is the accuser of the brethren and he accuses constantly and throws your sin in your face and tells you that you are unworthy of God's love, that you are unworthy of having any sort of relationship with God, that you are a blow it and that you are a loser. And the Bible says that, you know, what do you do when you're, you're with your accuser on your way to, a, to court? The Bible says, agree with your accuser quickly. And so what do you do is you say, you know what, Satan, you're right. I am all those things, but not in Jesus I'm not those things. Because in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your guilt, and he doesn't heap on shame. The amazing thing about the gospel is that when God looks at you, when you have received Christ and you become this new person in Christ, which the Bible says you do, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin because you're hidden in Jesus Christ. And so God looks at you as pure and as clean and as righteous, which none of those things you are in and of yourselves, but in Jesus you are. And it's an absolute amazing thing. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And so Jesus gives you a new name and he gives you a new identity. And no longer are you defined by what your abusers did to you, but you're defined by what Jesus did for you through his own abuse on the cross. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. Some of you need to hear that message today. That's why God brought you here today. Because God doesn't see you by this identity that's, that, that, that is wrapped around your neck like a noose. No, God in Jesus sees you as this new creation because that's what he died to make you. And some of you, you need to cry out to God today and say, I need to be made that new creation. I need to have my identity changed. You're the one who needs to set me free from this identity that I've been shackled with because in Jesus Christ, he gives us a new identity. By the way, Satan's push to cloud your identity I told you it's manifested in so many different ways. One of the ways we see culturally right now where Satan is attacking identity has to do with this current push to redefine gender. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that there's a current attack to, uh, to, on, on gender, for, to redefine gender, right? Um, it's, it's a massive issue today because it goes to the heart of our identity. 
And so the way that this is being put out culturally is that there is a demand by some that you use the personal pronoun to, re, to, re, to, to interact with that person based on their preferred sexual orientation, based on the identity that they've taken for themselves. And so instead of using pronouns like he and him and his and she and her and hers, which, which are classically based on person's biological sex at birth, well, the new push is that we have to first ask a person how they prefer to be identified because they have chosen an identity for themselves that is, that is contrary to, to their, their biological sex, and they instead are saying, this is the identity that I'm embracing. And so the use of personal pronouns is of their choice. This is what's being pushed right now for their preferred gender. And so you might have a he who prefers to be called a she, or you might have a she who prefers to be called a he, or you have a he or a she who prefers to identify as non-binary. And binary is this term which means I'm neither he nor she, right? And they would say, don't call me he, don't call me she, call me they, call me them, call me there. And there are all others of personal pronouns that we don't even have time to get into and quite frankly is just a rabbit hole of, of things where people, and what's it based on? It's based on identity. People who say, I've chosen my identity and I want and demand that you are going to give me respect by referring to me as my chosen identity. And here's what their argument is, is anchored in. Basically, they would say that identifying gender uh, as male or female only is a Western construct that this is part of our Western culture, that we're the ones who have chosen he or she, but we've chosen it incorrectly. It's a Western construct. Here's the problem with that. It's not true biblically. It's not true biblically. It's not a, quest, a Western construct. It is a biblical fact. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 that God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Personal pronoun, them, who is them? Well, quite different from what the world says when I want you to refer to me as they or them. Well, God says the them is either male or female. See, this is what God says. Now, the issue comes down to a satanic attack on identity. It's, it's an attack on identity. So, so the issue, and by the way, let me just say this, that, that is so critical to define who am I. Some people, they, they demand, well, you know who I am? I'm a they, I'm a them. I'm not a he, I'm not a she. I want to re be referred to as binary. Listen, God has given mankind choice. And you can choose to take that identity for yourself but, but and my argument isn't that people, you know, should be prevented from taking whatever identity they want to take. God's given us that freedom. But the fact is, is that people should not be forced to that, especially when the Bible says something completely different. The fact that somebody chooses to believe a lie and somebody chooses to take an identity that is contrary to biblical truth, which is, you know, it's a redundant term because the biblical truth is the only 
truth. And, and if somebody wants to do that, that's their business between them and God. If they choose an identity that is contrary to, to their identity in Christ, God has given to us that freedom, but it's going to cha- radically trans, uh, transform what their purpose in life is and, and tragically what their future in life is. And that's not my opinion. That's biblical truth. You see, so, so the, the issue is of who I am. It's so critically important that we answer this question. Now, I said there's three critical questions that every human craves answer to. Who I am uh, is one. Why am I here is the second. And the third is where am I going? And Paul here in our text, he establishes our identity here in the opening verses of Ephesians 2 to say who you are is either a child of wrath or you're a child of God based on who, what you do with Jesus is what he's saying. And so he, he answers the issue of identity, and next he goes to the answer this question of where am I going? Look at verses 4 through 7. He, he's laid the groundwork to say in verses 1 through 3, your identity is either you're a child of God or you're a child of wrath. And in verse 4, he's talking to, uh, to a group of people. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's, he's basically saying, you used to be a child of wrath, but now you're a child of God. Your identity's been established. And so now where are you going? He says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I'll just pause right there. I don't have time for that. Just I want to emphasize God loves you. He desperately loves you. He loves you no matter if you are deceived by the enemy and have chosen an an identity that is contrary to the identity that God has made you for. He loves you. And he's made a way for you to be redeemed and be made this new creation in Jesus Christ. And God's work on the earth is not a a work uh, uh, primarily motivated by judgment and wrath. It's not motivated by that. It's motivated by love. God wants to have this loving relationship with you. And so Paul says, look, God's rich in mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And what that means is that God's not up in heaven saying, until you get your act together, I'm not going to love you and I'm not going to try and redeem you. That's not what God says to us. He says, because I love you, even though you're in the middle of sinful rebellion against me. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins and I'm going to make a way for you to be rescued and redeemed. And so Paul says, even when we're dead in trespasses and sin, God makes us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he says, and he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul here speaks about the ages to come, um, this is a reference to the biblical doctrine of glorification. And, And glorification is a work that Jesus does. Jesus works in in the past, he works in the present, and he works in the future. And here's how that works. Jesus, uh, in the past, what did he do? Because God loves us, Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins in our place. And he offers salvation through his work on the cross, that he's taken all the sins of mankind upon himself, he paid the penalty on the cross, and then the decision is ours. Are we going to accept the Lord's 
uh, gift of, of salvation in the person and work of Jesus and confess that we're sinners and surrender our life to him and be saved, or are we going to continue in uh, our sinful rebellion? And so that's a work in the past for our salvation, right? And then what happens is that there's a work in the present. God wants to, the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And what happens is that uh, once God saves us, then God begins to transform us day by day, right? And then there's a work in the future, glorification. This is when we die and we go to be with Jesus in heaven. The Bible promises that we will be glorified. And here's how the way that people will articulate that. If you talk to most Christians about uh, their faith and they give their testimony about what happened to them, usually most testimonies kind of uh, focus on, well, you know, I was saved and I'm going to heaven. And that's fine, but it misses a huge key component. It misses the component of your life here on earth. See, if it was just about being saved and go to heaven, once you came to know Jesus Christ, Jesus would be like, let's go and take you out of the world and you'd go be glorified with him. So it's not just about salvation, God's work in the past, on, in Jesus on the cross. It's not just about uh, glorification, God's work in the future through the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's also about God's work of sanctification in the present, right? And so we've got this, this issue where, where, you know, we were asking the question, who am I and why am I here and where am I going? And as it pertains to where, am I, where I'm going, hey, glorification is where I'm going. The Bible says when Christ, who is our life, appears, Colossians 3, 4, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is talking about our future glorification together with Christ. Romans 8, 17 puts it this way. It says that we are God's children. By the way, that's an identity statement. We're God's children. And if children, Paul says in Romans 8, 17, then what are we? We're heirs, heirs of God, and we're joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also, here it is, be glorified together with him. In other words, just as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise um, and uh, we're going to rise from dead and we're going to appear with God in glory. So the answer to that question, who am I, this determines our identity, which then determines our future, where am I going, right? Well, in Christ, you're going to heaven to be glorified together with him. And that brings us back to the question that we started with, why am I here? Why are you here? What's your purpose? And Paul answers that question in verse 10. Look again. He says, here's your purpose. He says, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should, operative word, should walk in them. If you've heard me teach on this before, you know that word workmanship. What does it mean? It means work of art. It means poem, right? Poema is the word in the Greek. Literally, you are God's work of art, right? And you are created uniquely and you're created specifically and you're created unique, uniquely and specifically for a specific mission and purpose that God has prepared beforehand for you. So incredibly important that we understand that. See, because without a clear understanding of your mission, without a clear understanding of your purpose in life, then your life will then be aimless and empty. And humans don't handle aimless and empty well. And so if you don't have a clearly defined understanding of who, who am I 
and then a clear understanding of your purpose, right, and, and of, of your mission, then what's going to happen, you're empty, and so what do you naturally do? You want to fill that emptiness, and so humans fill that emptiness with all kinds of stuff. It could be a relationship. It could be their work. It could be their possessions. It, it could be sex or drugs or alcohol or, you know, any of these things. And what happens over time, this is important, what happens over time is that you, if you allow those things to become your purpose, then they are then your de facto mission and purpose. And what does that mean? This, is, that, this means, hey, what, what's the purpose of your life? And you go, well, I live to ride, or I live for the weekend, or I live to party, or, or I'm living for my career or I'm living for the next rung on the ladder that I can, that the advancement that I can make, you know, at my job, or I'm living, you know, to get more stuff. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's, that's my mission and purpose in life. And the problem is, is that those things might be filling purposes, but they will never be fulfilling purposes. They'll never be fulfilling purposes. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so the question then becomes, what is your mission and purpose? Now, Webster's Dictionary provides several definitions of this word missions, and it's useful for us to kind of work through this. One of the most commonly understood definitions when you talk about mission and purpose to, to, to anybody in the world, one of the most commonly understood definitions is this, that a mission is a pre-established and often, here's the key word, self-imposed objective or purpose. And while that's one definition of mission uh, in the Bible, thankfully it's not the only definition of mission because that definition of mission misses the biblical definition of what, of what mission is entirely. See, one of the other definitions that Webster's Dictionary will give you if you look up the word mission is that a mission is a specific task with which a person or a group is charged a specific task with, with which a person or a group is charged. And that's the best definition of this word mission because it, it, it gets us to the biblical idea. In other words, it's a duty or a responsibility that we are entrusted with. And, and I told you that that's closer to the biblical idea of mission. Why? Because as opposed to the idea that mission stems from our own self-imposed purposes... The true mission, according to, to the Bible, stems from a charge, a duty or a responsibility that we are entrusted with. And it all goes back to identity. Whatever identity you choose for yourself is going to determine your, your mission and your purpose. And if your identity is clouded, if your identity is not biblical, then the mission or the purpose that you choose is going to be something that ultimately does not bring fulfillment. And it certainly is not something that you have been charged with by God Almighty. It's something that you've taken upon yourself. Big difference between the two. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here in verse 10. He says, look, <clears throat> regarding your mission, regarding your purpose, and, and in stark contrast to being something that you take upon yourself, however way the wind blows, whatever, whatever floats your boat, he says, we are his workmanship. We're his work of art. And we have been created in Christ Jesus for his good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the idea here is that God has called you and me to his 
mission. Now, I did a whole series on missional living um, in our values series. I don't have time to get into all that. If you're looking for, for an additional study on this, you can go to our values series and you can listen to my message on missional living there. But when we talk about missional living, listen, you need to understand there's two aspects to it. There's two aspects to living missionally in, in response to a duty or charge that God has given to you. Um, and there is, so those two aspects are this. There's God's general mission in the world. And secondly, there's God's specific mission in your family. And both of these together is what makes up our missional charge. In other words, we have to be mindful and obedient to God's general mission for the world. And we also have to be mindful and obedient to God's specific mission for us in our family. What's my mission as a husband and a father? What's, what, what's, what's God's mission for my family that he's given me charge over? You get the idea. And both of these, by the way, are founded in community. They're founded in community. In the Gospels, we read that Jesus came to earth to begin a work of redemption. You know, what's this idea of redemption? It means that something is valuable and it needs to, and it needs to, be, uh, it, it needs to be taken and transformed and changed. You know, when I was a kid, my, uh, we had all these Coke bottles and we would take them and we would redeem them. We'd take them down to, to the local liquor store and they would give us money for the Coke bottles and we then uh, would, would buy all the candy we could fit in our pockets, right, and take home. What were we doing? doing? We were redeeming these things that had potential worth and we were exchanging them for actual worth, right? And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to do a work of redemption for fallen man. And you read through the book of Acts, and we see how Jesus continues uh, his, his work of redemption today, and who's he continue it through? You and me. He continues it through people, through relationships, right? And, and this is just, as you read the book of Acts, it's people like you and me. They're just living out their faith in authentic community. And so what they're doing along the way, they're discovering how their story fits with God's story. And as their story unfolds, what we begin to see is a unique culture uh, emerge where these believers are meeting together uh, in the temple courts. They're meeting together in their homes. They're focusing on the apostles' doctrine, on the Bible. What does it say? Uh, they're focusing on fellowship, uh, relating relationally with one another in a loving way, uh, on communion, remembering Jesus' work on the cross of re for redemption to redeem mankind, uh, which is so key and important because it constantly reminds us the Christianity isn't a relationship or isn't, a, isn't a, a religion of do good and try harder. It's a relationship with a God who did the best and did the, the hardest thing, which he already paid the penalty for. So we, we, they participated in communion. They participated together in prayer. And we see him praising God. And then we see them taking care of one another. And what emerges is this incredible culture that, that creates them having a good reputation in the world as they're just doing their best to live out the values that, that God had given to them based on their identity, who they are. It informed their purpose. It informed their future. It informed their hope. And so now it's a matter of I'm just going to work out my salvation day to day in obedience with the Lord. And what Jesus had told them, he says, look, you're going to be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why? Why? Because there's a massive identity crisis in the world. 
massive identity crisis in the world. People are lost, and they're going to hell, and they need to know that there's a God in heaven who loves them and who, who, who ever lives to give us a new identity, an identity in him, an identity that includes a future, and it includes a hope, and it informs our, our purposes here on this earth. There's meaning. There's purpose because you are a child of God, and you're loved. You're created in his image. And Jesus died to give you that new identity, to set you free from Satan and sin and death. And this is why when we read Mark chapter 16 or we read Luke chapter 14 or we read Matthew chapter 28, that Jesus makes it very clear what are we to do? We are to go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Jesus told his disciples, for the Son of Man came came to seek and save the lost. So incredibly important for us to keep that in mind. So, Because when we talk about missional living, this is our charge. Now, that brings us to the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to put the scriptures on the screen for you, but understand in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous uh, sermon uh, certainly that, that he ever gave. Um, and, and it's been said that if you take all of the, the, the good ideas, the, the best moral advice, and, and you took out all the junk and you boiled it all down, you would come to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins this sermon focusing on the blessings that we have as God's children. Basically, you're blessed when your identity is changed and you are a child of God. And then, beginning in verse 13, which I'll throw on the screen for you, he starts focusing on the business that we should be about. Here's what he says. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Understand that salt in those days was primarily used as a preservative because they they lacked vacuum packaging and refrigeration and all that stuff. And so if they butchered, you butchered, you know, a a cow and and you you finished up with the meat and you cooked, you know, the meat that was available on the day that you butchered it, you know, it was all well and good, but obviously you're going to have meat that's left over. And so what they would do is that they would then salt the meat that was left over. And what it did was that it killed any surface bacteria that was on the meat and it then had a preserving effect. And that's the key word. Um, And what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is that you, as a a spirit-filled child of God, you are the preserving effect in this world. See, and Christianity, wherever it has gone for the last 2,000 years, has been the preserving influence in society. But whenever the Christian voice begins to wane, what you will notice in that society is that that society begins to deteriorate and it begins to implode. Why? Identity, right? And so we are the preserving influence. Now, Jesus continues in verse 14, and he says, not only are you the salt of the earth, but he says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Where do they put it? They put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father." In heaven, and I want you to notice here, Jesus never said that we are to become salt and light. He simply says that when your identity is in Christ, then you are salt and light. And by the things that we say and the things that we do and how we live out our faith, live out our faith as children of God, we either fulfill that 
or we fail that. And this is simultaneously the greatest compliment that we will ever receive, and it's also the greatest responsibility that we will ever receive. Listen, it's the greatest compliment because calling us uh, the light of the world, this is a title that is, that is Jesus' title, right? This, this, is, this is a title that he took upon himself. A couple of scriptures, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, I... Of himself, speaking of himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Again, John 9, 5. He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so his conference of his own title upon you and me is a profound compliment. It's, and it's a wonderful thing that comes only through our identity in Christ. But he also, it, it also is a great responsibility that we carry to be called the light of the world for the same reason. Because it implies that when we act as Jesus acted, that we are acting as his ambassadors. If you look up that word ambassador in the dictionary, what you'll find is that it's an official envoy. It is the resident representative of a kingdom. And at the end of the day, as God's children, that's, that, that's who we are. You are a resident, you live here on earth, representative, not of your kingdom, but of, of the kingdom of God. The idea is that you represent the ruler, and if you represent the ruler, then you've got to be his represent, representative and not your own, right? And, and we all have these, these glorious and not-so-glorious opportunities in our life where sometimes we act as his representative well, and other times we're on the 91 freeway getting cut off by somebody, and then I'm a representative of my own sinful flesh, right? If you're me. Some of you are real great examples of Jesus even in that situation. God bless you. Here you go. You obviously got somewhere to go. Um, and so many of us are like, I'll tell you where to go. I'm so upset that you just cut me off, you know. Listen, as Christians, we are, represent, we are resident representatives of Jesus. Paul told the Ephesians that you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, a key thought in, in both pictures, the picture of being salt and the picture of being life, light, is, is uh, it, it, a key uh, thought in this is, is the idea of distinction. That, that we need to be distinctively different from the world that we live in, and that's not a work of the flesh. It's a work of God's Holy Spirit in us, and that comes from identity, right? And, and David Guzik, in his commentary on Matthew, he said this. He said, to be effective, we must seek and display the Christian distinctive. We can never affect the world for Jesus by becoming like the world. And so seeking and displaying the Christian distinctive has its roots in your identity. Are you a child of God? And so Jesus says salt is needed because the world is rotting and decaying and light is needed because the world lives in darkness. And so salt, if your Christianity is rotting and decaying, you ain't got nothing to give. So, so that, that preserving effect needs to be present. And, and hey, because the world is in darkness, if you are living in darkness, you've got nothing to show the world. So being salt and light means that we're not only light receivers, but we're also light givers. And we can't just live for ourselves. We have to have a genuine concern for other people. In other words, we have to have someone to shine our lights Two, and we have to do so intentionally. And why? Because they're precious to God. 
They're precious to God. The person who bothers you the most is precious to God. Years ago, we, Brenda and I, we had the, uh, a Cavalier King Charles, a little dog. His name was Bentley. If you've ever seen a Cavalier King Charles, the greatest little dogs, uh, he would have been content to spend his entire life on our lap. And not just on our lap. He would climb up. If you were sitting in a chair, he would climb up. He'd just put one paw on either side of your neck, and then he'd press his little face right into your cheek. Just the, just the greatest little dog. And uh, he's gone home to be in doggy heaven now, so, which isn't a thing. But at any rate, uh, blasphemy, how can you say that? But he's a great little dog. One night, Bentley got out. And we, at the time, we lived on Temecula Creek. So every night, packs of coyotes would serenade us to sleep, you know. Um, we literally would have coyotes run down our street. So he gets out. It's nighttime. And I'm freaking out. I'm like, he is going to be a little doggy snack for, for these coyotes. So I'm out searching for him. And I, and I, I call my son-in-law, Zach. He'd left my house a few minutes earlier. I'm like, please come back. Help me find this dog. I'm searching everywhere for this dog. And, I'm, and I find myself, I'm all, almost at the point of tears. I'm begging God, God, save him. Save him, God. Help me find him, God. Please help me find him. And I told this story, and I didn't give the outcome for first service. I found him. Zach actually found him. Thank you, thank you, Lord. We got him back safe. But in the midst of this, before I had found him, and as I'm pleading with God, save him, save him, save him, God says, hey, Pastor Ted, do you beg for the people of Temecula like that? I'm like, wow, I just, just take me out, God. Save the dog and just smite me, like, you know. But see, when we do that, when we have that heart to say, look, people are, are precious to God, and, he, and he, he saved us, and he wants us to live missionally so he can save other people. And when we do that, what were we doing? We're engaging in the work that Jesus is already doing. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, God does not merely send the church in mission. God already is in mission, and the church must join him. This also means that the church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be a mission. Uh, Ed Stetzer in his book, Missional Living, says something similar. He says, missional living is rooted in the triune sending God. The fact that God is a sender is connected with the very existence of the church. Right? And we see this principle reflected in the Gospels in John chapter 20. You read there, as Jesus commissioned his disciples, it, it says this, it says, Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me. That's a missional commission. He says, I also send you, missional commission. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And what you see here when you read that, you see the Trinity. God the Father uh, sends his Son Right, you, You've got the Father, you've got the Son, the Holy Spirit. God sends his Son, empowers him missionally. Jesus then sends us, empowers us with the Holy Spirit, sends us missionally. And this is the work that he wants to do. And it's fundamental to who God is. He's a missional God. So missional living's not optional for us. It's not incidental. And the idea is that we can't participate in Christ without participating in his mission to the world. And miss, missional living, guys, it doesn't just happen by chance. It has to be something that we do intentionally. It has to be something, it has to be this duty that we embrace and say, my identity is that I'm a child of God. And because of that, my purpose, among other things, is to engage in Jesus' mission here. 
That's the idea. Jesus illustrates this intentional principle, and I close with this thought, by comparing us to a lampstand. The idea is just as lamps are placed higher so that their light can be more effective, so also we have to look for ways to let our light shine in greater and broader ways, being intentional in our mission, like a city that's set on a hill. I'll close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, The object of our shining is not that men may see how good we are or even see us at all, but that they may see grace in us and God in us and cry, what a father these people must have. Is this not the first time in the New Testament that God is called our father? He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Very first time that God is ever referred to as our father right there in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, this is not significant that the first time that it peeps out that God is our Father should be when men are seeing the good works of his children. And this happens, Jesus says, through missional living, just being salt and light for a desperate and dying world. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to give you three questions before we do as we always do. I'd, I'd encourage you to write these down, take a walk with them this week. Question number one, answer this. What is my true identity, and what does that identity mean for my future? I emphasize true identity because people take false identities all the time. And you have to look at the identity that you've taken, and you have to answer the question, your identity is going to inform not only your purpose, but your future. And so what does the identity that I've taken for myself say about my future? Or more accurately, what's the Bible say about the identity that you take upon yourself? What does that say about your future? Number two, and true identity. You just, you know, saying you're a Christian, you know, it's like, you know, what's the old saying that, that you know, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going, you know, to the donut shop makes you a cop or going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac, you know. And, um, you know, so, so, the, so the issue is, is that it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what's true. So what is my true identity and what does that mean for my future? Second question, how faithful am I to the charge that God has given to me in his general mission to the world. Third question, what is my purpose? God's specific mission for me and my family. Because I've talked a lot about God's general mission and our engaging in that. God's got a specific purpose for you as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a child, as a fiance. What's your purpose? What's God's specific mission for me? And here's, here's what you need to do when you're answering that. Answer this, does my stated purpose align with Scripture? And do my priorities line up with what I say is a purpose in my life?